Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, way back in episode 22, teacher friend Jess and I went to Suzhou. We visited the Suzhou Silk Museum, and we hadn't really spent any time getting to know Suzhou City. It's one of the charms of Jiangsu, so we wanted to go back. So that's what we're doing today. We're going back to Suzhou, and we're also going back in time. It was a brisk and sunny late winter's day. And Jess and I hitchhiked to Suzhou on one of the dozen or so buses that shuttle students to nearby cities on a Friday afternoon. When we popped out of Suzhou's metro system, we were at Suzhou railway station. This big communist structure, with its vast, flat, corrugated, iron-inspired roof, sits proudly just north of the old town. Looking south from there, you can see a rather pensive statue of the Song Dynasty poet and the statesman Feng Zhongyan, who famously said. Be the first to bear hardships and the last to enjoy comforts. It's one of those phrases which is passed down and quoted earnestly by each generation in China, as their quest to avoid hardships and embrace comforts ratchets up. Beyond Fan, you see the moat and the impressive walls which surround the old town. It's a grand welcome. Directly ahead is one of the wall's eight gates, built originally with the wall two and a half thousand years ago by the Wu King Minister. Wu Zhishu, when the place was the capital of the state of Wu. The walls were part of Wu Zhishu's grand portfolio, which included helping the local Prince Guang assassinate rival leaders, developing what could have been the first Chinese navy, and fending off the rival states of Chu and Yue. In the latter of these tasks, it helped that Wu was a friend of Sun Tzu, a Chinese figure who gets as close to a household name as you can get in the West, the author of the Art of War. Upon victory over his local rivals, Prince Guang became King Hulu, King of the Wu State, one of the big daddies of China's spring and autumn period. All this talk of Wu gets a tad confusing because there were two Wu stages in local history. Apart from the Wu State two and a half thousand years ago, there was the short-lived but highly influential Eastern Wu State, one of the three kingdoms who sought complete rule over China in the third century A.D. The region known as Jiangnan and the Yangtze River Delta is also known as Wu, in reference to these periods of Wu. The people here are known as the Wu people, and they trace their lineage back to the legendary founder of the state, Taibo, and Count Film Director and Slow Motion Extraordinaire John Wu among their number. Wu Tianming, the man who I met on a bus in episode sixteen, and Madame Wu, the fire-breathing matriarch of the Cradle of Elites. Cropped up in episode twenty-seven, or、well, they're Wu's too. The local dialect is predictably enough known as the Wu language. The Chinese character for all these Wu's is the same. It's、uh, Wu, that's W-U, with the second tone, the rising tone Wu. But the Wu of Wu Zhishu, the builder of Suzhou's walls, and the Wu of Wuxi, 
which is another city somewhat north and west of Suzhou, well, they are different Wu's. Okay, that's the Wu's covered. Now, King Hulu, king of the Wu state, two and a half millennia before now, right here in Suzhou, he was eventually wounded in battle and died, leaving the kingdom to his son, Fu Chai. His downfall came in the hands of the rival kingdom of Yue, whose king, Gou Jian, had previously been a guest at the Wu prison. Released and seeking revenge, Gou Jian apparently sent an incredibly beautiful woman called Xi Shi to Wu, causing intense confusion among the statesmen. King Fu Chai ended up executing his invaluable minister, Wu Zexu, the builder of these incredible walls, and on the eve of defeat, the king committed suicide. The wall state was no more. Looking from the modern train station over the ancient city, within the walls is a water gate, and proudly upon that a gate tower, or a gatehouse, with the roofs delicately turned up and two tiers above the wooden base. The name, in this case, Pingmen Gate, is scrawled from right to left in Chinese calligraphy. In the middle distance, Bao Ang Pagoda, a nine-story octagonal tube, also built during the days of Wu. And somewhere between these two landmarks was Tao Hua Wu Youth Hostel, our weekend retreat. A hazy damp mist hung in the air above Suzhou, adding a twinkling quality to the uniform architecture, all white with brown edges. We didn't have much of a plan from here, but whatever it might turn out to be, the taxi drivers were keen to have a piece of the action. We brushed past them, waving them away, mostly because we didn't know where we wanted them to take us. If you wind up in a taxi without a clear understanding of the destination, or a way to say it, the driver will simply drive and hope for the best. Never under any circumstances will they admit we don't know where we're going. That had to be avoided. As we crossed the street, we were charged at by two women wielding maps. Each of them wore shapeless, old clothes and the deep wrinkles of age and weather. They spoke excitedly, quickly, in competition with each other. Taxis and maps, two highly practical items for the tourist, being beaten away by us lost aimless fools. But then I paused, just for a moment, to look at the map, and our troubles doubled. The woman took this as a sign of interest, and simply wouldn't leave us alone. We were to be forever tethered, like soldiers who witnessed some atrocity, or a tongue frozen to a lamppost. The other woman with the other map slinked off, defeated. But with a glint in her eye, this one stood firm. She followed us as we crossed roads, went over the south plaza, aimless all the while, and we finally decided that, in part to get rid of her, a map might just come in handy. With the aid of the map, a successful taxi journey could perhaps be achieved. So with the name Tao Hua Wu on the tips of our tongues, we approached the taxi rank. Not five minutes ago we were surrounded by needy, greedy cab drivers, and yet now... No one wanted to help. Tao Hua Wu, we said to them, and they would repeat the word in confusion, peer at the sky, glance at their taxi friends, and say, no, no, no. Eventually a driver took us. This was no great relief, for experience told us that being in a Chinese cab doesn't mean you're getting closer to where you want to go. Thankfully, though, on this occasion, the good man pulled through, and the driver drove us the relatively short distance to Tao Hua Wu Road where we bumped along the cobbles, past street vendors and tiny convenience stores, until we saw that beacon of good tidings, the Hostelling International sign. Tao Hua Wu Youth Hostel is big, 
subsumed entirely into the large buildings which sit on this road. From the outside, you can't even tell where the actual hostel is. The entrance is down a side road, the door hidden by plants. Inside, it's full of bright walls and notes left by long-gone travellers. As the receptionist opened my room door, I shot her a smile, said thanks, and told her what a nice place this was. She returned a half-smile and went back to work. Wordlessly, Jess and I threw our bags into our adjacent rooms and nodded an agreeing nod. It was time for a beer. The hostel's bar was playing quiet Chinese pop music, a song that I had become quite familiar with. The only words I could make out were, Wo ai ni, I love you. It's a rare song in China which doesn't at some point croon these words. The song on the radio was a national favourite, called The Moon Represents My Heart. It was written by the megastar sensation Teresa Dung from Taiwan. And back in the day, her songs were banned from China, along with all foreign music. Dung's tunes, with their bourgeois romance, lacked the toil and social sacrifice that China's band of dedicated communists expected from their music. But the irrepressibly romantic nature of the Chinese people meant that she ended up flourishing on the black market in the 1980s. Opposed to the values of the CCP, she never visited China. and She died in Chiang Mai, just 42 years old but lives on in the collective consciousness of 1.4 billion Chinese and many more others in this part of the world. We were accompanied in this bar by one man, the barman, and we sat on stools with bottles of Corona, ice cold. Hunger set in and we made to leave. In the hostel reception area we met a Chinese woman in her mid-twenties who was also considering the map with some confusion. Want to come for dinner? I asked. This innocent, even kind gesture masked a more deviant motive. This woman can help us find somewhere to eat, I thought. Living in the school with free canteen food and only two choices at any given meal makes food life pretty simple. The choice of what to eat and where to eat it, or what to eat and how to cook it. Well, this tickled my anxiety bone in a way that few other survival requirements do. Remaining hydrated, by comparison, no problem whatsoever. Add to this the language barrier, and one has to take a deep breath before going out on the hunt. It's all too easy to wind up in a pizza place or a burger joint, usually of some American brand, but I always slink out of these places feeling guilty, destroying the local economy and not adequately doing my intrepid travel a bit well enough. Having accosted a tour guide named Hong, we ambled down to Shangtung Street one of Suzhou's two traditional canal-hugging tourist streets. Gondolas paddled along the canal, under red lanterns hanging from buildings of wood and white brick. School kids ran about, saying hello when they got a chance, often talking through a forgotten dumpling in their mouths. People window-shopped for traditional toys and dresses or perched on the seats by the canal, ordering others to take photos of them. As the sun began to set, listless ballads began to ring out from the bars, as the night shift began for the hired crooners. We chose a cute but cold restaurant which served noodles. Jess stuck to her guns and had oily vegetables, me, pork. The Chinese have four cardinal flavours, sour, sweet, bitter, spicy. Sun tian gu la, as they say. Outside, the place was littered with amateur photographers, mostly snapping the twilight sun with the shapely woman silhouetted before it. 
Looking down Shantung Street is like looking back in time, except for the people weighed down with gadgets. The canal hosts a number of tourist barges, each with a woman laboriously paddling a huge single oar. On one side, a stone pathway struggles to contain the tourists, on the other, the houses end where the water begins. The buildings all connect, a hodgepodge of sizes, rising at times like steps flanking the canal. At their base they are crumbling stone, the white paint flakes off and it's all framed with the wooden slats. The windows are thin and all have this maze-like pattern in wood, and of course, the brown roofs bending like ski slopes. Dozens of red Chinese lanterns swing in the cool, late winter air. In previous eras, these would have been the houses of families, but now families have modernised into the apartment blocks where the air-conditioning unit doesn't threaten to pull down the wall under its weight. Most of these buildings are now geared up for the tourists, selling tea, coffee, bamboo trinkets, communist paraphernalia. I bought myself a hot water mug, the omnipresent enamel mug, or Bay. These stout, white mugs are an everyday object of the working class, but slightly too hot to hold when the tea is in, as I recall. These days they have a nostalgic function, as better quality mugs have pushed them out of the market. The one I bought implored the masses to rise up in the name of Comrade Mao. In the next episode, we'll look a bit deeper at China's so-called red tourism. But for now, let's stick with the less revolutionary aesthetics of the Jiangnan water town. The weeping willows and stone bridges, the pale buildings reflected in the canals. The Tang Dynasty poet come governor of Suzhou, Bai Ju Yi, summed up the mood here pretty well in a poem, which goes... A strip of waters spread in the setting sun. Half the river's emerald, half is red. I love the third night of the ninth month. The dew is like a pearl, the moon like a bow. Well, it wasn't the third night of the ninth month, more like the ninth night of the third month, but Suzhou's water town is magical year-round. And I'd return many times before I finally left China. Later that evening... In the youth hostel bar, we met a traveller. A young Canadian was shagging his way through Asia, and, combining sexual escapades with pseudo-academic interests, had begun to compile a dossier of the different attitudes of women in rural and urban areas, and he was handing down his teachings in the oral tradition. Rural women could be relied upon to be starstruck, he noted, giddy on fizzy Qingdao beer, and they're also helplessly naive. They could be won over with declarations of love, hints of wealth, and the exoticism of the new world. Urban women are no less interested, he had concluded, but far more self-aware. Thus, one was advised to appeal to the independent spirit and the liberalism of progressive professionals who were going places, and the exoticism of the new world. White fever is the term used for those who find the whiteness of Westerners an attractive quality in itself. Yellow fever is the same in the other direction, although it's a term that sounds more than a little racist, and in sharing a name with a nasty viral disease, it's probably best avoided. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we remain in Suzhou to do some red tourism and explore how China has commodified its revolutionary past into nostalgic products. And we also visit Suzhou's famous gardens. <laughs>